Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. This is episode 41. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is my co-host, mm-hmm. uh, good friend, uh, compatriot, mm, comrade, mm, conspirator, Michael. Hey, Cameron, it's me, Child's Play Michael. And now I proceed to whack you with, like, a branch. And I say it's a lightsaber. This is my least favorite uh, alter ego of Michael. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> Let's, uh, oh, no. Oh, Child's Play Michael. Oh, no, you're you're rocketing into the sun. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, did you see that? Child's Play Michael. Uh, yeah. Oh, burned up in the corona the sun wow i guess didn't make it to the fourth grade to learn about all the different parts of the sun and how they all destroy you <laughs> that Rip was the step was thinking that the outer layer of the sun was was a uh, fair game mm-hmm. much like uh, a modern day icarus child's play michael <laughs> oh michael this uh this time uh this uh episode we are uh we're talking about a book mm-hmm. that you suggested at the end of last uh, episode uh people got to hear that probably in real time i might have edited mm-hmm. it a little bit but generally they they got the vibes uh this is seth giddings's uh book game worlds virtual media and children's everyday play it came out in 2014 um from bloomsbury academic Bloomsbury mm-hmm. Academic is kind of a, uh, an academic press, but Bloomsbury are generally known as a commercial press, and they have kind of an academic arm. Seth Giddings is uh, currently an associate professor of digital uh, culture and design at the University of Southampton's Winchester School of Art. Uh, I'm not quite sure how long Giddings has been there, but uh, been there a while. Been publishing research since this book came out. Uh, you know, almost a decade ago uh, at this point, and uh, seems to be kind of doing similar stuff that's going on in this book. But maybe the best way to get into this is for you to tell us why you wanted to read this book, Michael, because this is, uh, you know, uh, in our three big categories of books that we read here, you know, canonical classics, new books that we're really interested in, and then wild cards. This is kind of like in that middle zone of, uh, you know, not really being clearly in any of those three categories. It's just a game studies book that you thought looked interesting for reasons yeah uh basically i chose this book because uh over on one of our other shows homestuck made this world where we're talking about the webcomic homestuck and reading through that uh you had brought up that i should look into children's literature and sort of children's media uh which i immediately decided i should do and so when we were trying to think of what kind of book to read next what might be a a a little different from what we've been doing. Uh, I looked at what I had in my to read pile and there was this, which I had chosen specifically because uh, it looked like it was going to talk about the convergences of children's media kind of traditionally interpreted with digital games and sort of the the spread of digital games uh, in the late 2000s, early teens. In which case, uh, I was not disappointed. That is, in fact, exactly what this book is about uh, and sort of the 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 precise sort of set of questions that it is trying to ponder. And so uh, it was very profitable in that regard in that I was like, OK, so here are all of these questions that I would have had. Here's some other responses to them. Um, 
And I think overall, like the benefit of having read this is I now know where I can kind of tunnel into some of the prior research on exactly this question uh, and where I go from there in terms of working on this entirely different project uh, for an entirely different podcast. But in case you're not an academic or have never had to like do sustained research in this way, uh, that's how the sausage is made. Sometimes you you read a book in order to figure out where to go from reading that particular book. And I think that this was a really helpful uh, signpost in that regard. That's a big part of the way that I was trained to do research because, and I think probably you as well, based on what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think this book, you know, when we're thinking thinking about uh, broad styles, this book is somewhere in the middle of that. You know, sometimes we're getting um, big citational kind of of broad ideas, and sometimes we're getting really, really specific deep dives. But all of that is oriented around children's play, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't care about. (laughs) You know, I got to say that up top. I, I, you know, I have no real interest in children's play, you know, academically, Uh, or anything like that. Um, But uh, that doesn't mean that I don't think that this book is interesting. Uh, And uh, in fact, I I thought that most of the analysis, or maybe all of the analysis of just talking about how children play in this book was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really one of my big uh, kind of broad takeaways is that, um, not not to like get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, but I think at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot to separate children's play from adult play. Mm-hmm. I, I think that might be uh, somewhat arbitrary in, uh, uh, in terms of like what those mechanisms are, just in terms of some of the things that are described here and how we can see maybe uh, parallels between the weird things that kids get up to versus like, I don't know, weird things that adults might uh, do in terms of what their recreational gaming is like. Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, one thing that we are can be absolutely sure of at the end of this book is that kids are little weirdos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're doing weird stuff all the time. Yeah, this book is kind of, uh, to touch on your point about uh, the things it's doing, it's sort of a mixture of... Uh, um, kind of a microethnography uh, sort mm. of thing, uh, like actual transcripts of have of recorded sessions of children playing or overheard, right? Uh, that Giddings was in the room or has uh, a video footage of these kids playing that's sort of being transcribed and then uh, analyzed and interpreted. Uh, it's sort of that mixed with what you were talking about, sort of some some theoretical drilling down, uh, trying to build kind of a, a scaffolding for how do we look at children's play and uh, make it mean something or, or uh, find some sort of meaning in it, uh, a socially relevant meaning, uh, in some ways opposed to kind of more traditional notions of, and this is a big thing, uh, I think, in this book, of this idea that like... Uh, digital media are forcing the kids to stay inside and they're all going to become like shut-ins and uh, just sort of that type of moral panic about changes in children's play, which actually I think at one point it it is said that uh, changes in children's play being a source of controversy is as old as the study of children's play. Mm -hmm. And and children are not that old. Yes. Uh, You know, (laughs) as as we're, we are told, you know, the very notion of, uh, of what a child is is um fairly recent in in history um mm-hmm. you know it's it's a uh historical construct uh like many things are mm-hmm. um, you know and i <laughs> somewhere in the book he's, he's explaining that and Gideon says that uh you know at one point 
you know, the the it was basically infants and then adults, you know, with very little, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not the gradations that we have now between those two states. He says something like, uh, and the way we know that is that, uh, you know, once they were no longer toddlers, they were dressed in miniature versions of adult clothing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, it's like, uh, you know, that's a really easy way of explaining why like every chimney sweep in, <laughs> in uh, the 19th century just had a little pork pie hat on or whatever. Because, uh, you know, that was the that was the style of the time. Everyone walked around with an onion in their pocket. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, oh, you're no longer a, a toddler. Here's your belt onion yep exactly mm-hmm. um well do we want to di- well okay one one additional thing i want to say here kind of up top about method which is pretty interesting is that is exactly what you said right that that seth giddings is uh, throughout this book building arguments out of his own children mm-hmm. meaning that he is recording and surveilling his children constantly and then reviewing that footage and checking it out in order to, uh, you know, work out how child's play works. And he's often kind of an actant in that. And so, you know, you called it a, a mini ethnography. Uh, Giddings is going to call that an ethology. We mm-hmm. can talk about the differences between that when we get there. Um, but the, the word that really doesn't get used very often here, if at all, I, I didn't write it down, is um, participant observer. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a little bit of uh, this anthropological work in here. And and I will say at the top, I was a little bit... Um, I, I, not, I, I, not a little bit something. It is interesting to see that that is just kind of taken as a given, and there's not a lot of kind of meta reflection on that. Mm-hmm. What kind of effect the studying of and the recording of these children has on their play types and how they're responding and how they're playing towards things. You know, at one point, Giddings basically just says, well, they were being recorded all the time, so they weren't really worried about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, just in a broad methodological um, perspective, I really wonder about that. You know, I I wonder about what the data looks like in observation conditions versus non-observed conditions. Um, you know, once you are presented with an observer, you begin performing for an observer. I think that's mm-hmm. something that is well understood in um, social sciences broadly, and there's not a lot of grappling with that here. And does it matter one way or the other? I don't quite know. But that is something that kind of gets, um, uh, I don't know, kind of annihilated in the analysis, just not really thought through as its own pillar here in the book mm-hmm. about what that does. Um, and also, I don't, you know, I feel kind of weird about it in a broad sense. I just have to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't think that I would study my children this way. I don't have children, and so it is what it is. You know, I, I will I will not be in this position to make that call, but it does feel a little bit weird to me to be like, all right, I'm writing my whole book about my kids yelling about Darth Maul. Um, I don't think I would have. I, I think as an adult, if I were a child, I don't think I would have wanted my childhood written about in an academic setting this way. Mm. But I don't know. Just me. Just mm-hmm. some some. I just got to be honest about my kind of gut check feelings going into the book. That's a little bit, uh, it was a little bit uh, off-putting for me. Maybe this is just um, totally normal for the genre and I'm not aware of it with children's, uh, writing about children's play. Uh, maybe that's just my ignorance of the thing. Uh, the one other thing I want to point out is that in the acknowledgments, uh, you uh, you might see, I don't know if you saw this. Did you read the acknowledgments here? I thought I did, but I don't remember anything that I saw. So um, Giddings was in the School for Col- of Cultural Studies at Bristol. Oh. I'm like 99% sure that's where this is. Is it, is it Bristol? 
that is where um, Patrick Krogan still is. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, so this is what it says. I was working on my PhD with Martin Lister, collaborating on a book on new media with him and our colleagues in the then School of Cultural Studies, John Dovey, Kieran Kelly, and Ian Hamilton Grant. With John and Helen W. Kennedy, I set up the play research group, which later welcomed Rune Clavier, uh, Hannah Werman, and Patrick Krogan. Oh. So, so this is really giving us a pretty hefty um uh historical perspective on the way that this kind of little uh school of game studies works out mm-hmm. uh, because all of these people are broadly concerned with the relationship between the human and the non-human yes. you know that showed up in the Patrick Krogan book um Dovey and Kennedy uh you know wrote i think it's called game cultures yeah game cultures computer games as new media which is a really important book of game studies of that kind of type from 2006 uh, maybe we'll do that on the show at some point. It, it's a book that has been really important for some people in some sectors of game studies, but not everyone everywhere. Um, and maybe it would be interesting uh, to to look at that. And then um, Rune, uh, Rune Clavier, uh, which I'm uh, I might be pronouncing that, and I'm sorry if or mispronouncing that, and I'm sorry if I am, but has written some fascinating histor- or, uh, philosophical work about games. I I consistently go back to his work regularly. It's it's really really cool. So uh, this is just an interesting little like snapshot of of where a lot of really interesting game studies work has come out of, and especially what I would say philosophically or theory heavy engagement. Um, and of course, Ian Hamilton Grant is in this group. Do you mm-hmm. know? Do you know who this is? Oh, yes, yes. Right. So one of the uh, the cursed founders of speculative realism, <laughs> broadly across the board, um, you know, wrote uh, after this or way after this, after this new media book that they did, but wrote Philosophies of Nature after Schelling, which was like this kind of bombshell of uh, of, of uh, speculative philosophy and uh, was the translator of Symbolic Exchange and Death from Baudrillard and um, uh, Libidinal Economy from uh, Leotard into English. And so, like, those are massively important philosophical texts. And Ian Hamilton Grant shows up in this text a few times. But that's just some weird stuff that's in the acknowledgments that I think is pretty interesting for drawing a little kind of schema of of what this is in conversation with, both explicitly in the text and implicitly in the acknowledgments. But um, I've been talking about this for a minute. Michael, do we want to move directly into the introduction? Absolutely. So I think we can maybe uh, we say this sort of thing every time, but I think we can move through this pretty quickly because this is actually a pretty thin book. Um, uh, uh, not in terms of like the the number of ideas that it has, but I just mean in terms of how long it is quite literally. It's about 160 pages. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not counting notes. Uh, so uh, we can kind of move through kind of the big ideas. Uh, I think, as you said, this was a this was uh, Giddings's dissertation, which I did not realize for some reason I was thinking it was like a second project or like sort of a, a, a side project uh, alongside other things. Uh, yeah, as far as I know, it's the dissertation. Oh, I, I, okay. That's what it seemed to be uh, based on the uh, publications and research uh, mm-hmm. section on Giddings's website. Okay, well, the introduction uh, just kind of uh lays out why are some of the what are some of the key terms here if we're going to look at this intersection of like traditional children's play with digital media and kind of a structuring uh notion for that for Giddings is this idea of the game world or like the notion of worldness of a particular um I guess 
video game slash media franchise slash play group. There's this is one of the things that I would uh, sort of like highlight at the beginning about this book in general, right, is that it takes uh, children's play digital media uh, as to some extent kind of coterminous with pre-existing franchises. Uh, not all the time, right? There are things that are talked about here that are not like little transmedia endeavors exactly. Um, but a lot of that is what is talked about. And uh, like you, Cameron, uh, I do not really research children's play all that often, and I do not have kids myself. Uh, so I don't really know what the media landscape looks like or like what the child's play landscape looks like if there is some kind of self-selection here if we're going to think about um, the types of games that are being played. So we get like lots of Star Wars, lots of Lego uh, and things like that. Um, I don't think that this is necessarily wrong, right? I think that this is, uh, like, accurate for what these objects are. Um, but again, I do wonder, like, what sorts of um, assumptions are being made up front? Or, like, what, what does that do to our vision as uh, trying to think about children's play? As people trying to think about that, what what do we do with uh, this worldness? Um, now, Giddings takes this into some interesting places. Uh, but that's more to talk about later. Um, mm -hmm. so that's sort of like the first half maybe of this introduction. Uh, and then what is the kind of, uh, core innovation of digital media within the space of children's play? Um, it is about, and this is on page nine, uh, the quote rule bounded mediating structures of digital media. Uh, this is the sort of key ingredient. So the, the idea here, right, the historical view being taken is that, uh, for some amount of time, there have been children, children have been playing, their play has looked like a certain way, right? It has looked like something. Um, the introduction of digital media, uh, basically, uh, it rather than saying like, oh, it was uh, all good before, then it turned bad, or or trying to, trying to resist that kind of moralistic turn, uh, Giddings is wondering, well, what is it that changes about children's play when digital media enter the scene? And what does this then uh, emphasize about what has been true about digital media or about children's play historically, right? If, mm -hmm. if, if children's media changes in these ways, or if children's play changes in these ways due to the emergence of digital media, um, then what was it that changed? And what does that mean about what children's play has sort of constantly been right what do the what does the presence of digital media allow us to do to kind of reassess history up until the advent of that thing so really what ends up happening is that the first two chapters are kind of about trying to unpack uh worldness uh like what that might mean theoretically or sort of terminologically uh, particularly through this idea of the virtual which um i had some thoughts about and i know for uh instance cameron you had some thoughts about uh the third mm -hmm. chapter is then kind of the extra explanation of the microethology uh, terminology and, and sort of the parameters of that. Uh, and then the final three chapters are kind of about different types of things that show up in children's play. Uh, one is about media worlds, and this is uh, sort of about like the ways that children uh, react to or uh, think about franchises, right? What is sort of the, the child response to franchise logic? Um, uh, then there's a chapter on how children tend to interact with computers or with sort of like, you know, digitally uh, enabled like toys and things of that nature. 
Um, and then there's a chapter on playgrounds, like literal, actual, like physical playgrounds uh, with children, how kind of uh, things from video games show up in children's play. Uh, and then the final uh, chapter is kind of a, an attempted summary chapter, but also putting forth uh, what Giddings calls a, a proto-politics of play. That is to say, given everything that I've talked about up until this point, um, what do we, what are we to do with or about children's play, right? What are we supposed to think about that sort of thing? Um, so uh, the first chapter then, Virtual and Actual Worlds, is uh, about this uh, Lego Racers game, right? Watching his kids play uh, Lego Racers, but then also noticing how his kids start playing uh, Lego Racers when they're not like they're not playing the video game. It's like hit the two boys saying, let's play Lego Racers. And they're like running around the living room like they take on the the position of the car slash racer. Mm -hmm. Um and this in allows him to introduce uh, a kind of core idea for this book, uh, the idea of transduction, uh, which I think originally comes out of cybernetics. Is that the origin point for that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and he we've talked about cybernetics before. We talked about it, for instance, in the Patrick Krogan episode, whom we've already talked about at the beginning. And we know these two guys were working together. So the point of transduction then uh, is that uh, there's a way in which like the the aesthetics or the world of Lego, uh, which is, you know, a, a, a physical material toy series, right? These kids have Lego toys they can build. Uh, and this is talked about to some extent later. Uh, they can build Lego racers both in the game, but then use analogous Lego pieces to build the same cars that they've built like in real life. Uh, so for child's play, then uh, Giddings is trying to think about how what does it mean that uh, elements of video games are going to emerge into actual children's play such that his kids are going to, you know, run around the living room playing Lego racers. But I think uh, one really current example for it, for this, I remember about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, there was like a genre of tweet. Uh, maybe you remember this, Cameron, uh, where someone would be like, I just saw some kids like some neighborhood kids playing among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So yelling uh, sus. <laughs> yes. Running around the neighborhood yelling sus. Traitor. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Right. Doing uh, do, doing a Fortnite dance. <laughs> uh, and then this uh, all sort of culminates in this really bizarre moment at the end where he is uh, like he's watching his kids play the Lego racers thing. Right. So thinking about how are these kids uh, imagining themselves uh, inhabiting this technologized world? And then they have him play like the player. Uh, is that mm -hmm. was that your read of it? Because sometimes I, I'm not quite sure. Okay, I was going to say sometimes spoilers. Uh, this is a point that comes up a couple times. Uh, children's play is very surreal. So sometimes I am not entirely sure what these kids are trying to get at, but I think the idea here is that the kids have taken on the the position of like the Lego racers uh, and they're telling their dad, like you are the, uh, the one in control. You're at like playing the computer, but you know, what they are doing is not really in any way connected to what he is doing. And so he uh, uses this as a way to think about uh what he calls uh, the passive performance of interactivity, right? The the mm -hmm. ways that the kids think about the game is uh, 
the things on the screen, right? When we're playing this outside of the screen, I want to be the thing that's like bouncing around, moving around. And he has to play the person who is kind of standing there watching and like pretending to press buttons on the keyboard and uh, have some sort of control over the situation. Yeah, this is where one of the kids says, I'm the one who makes the Lego racers go. Yes. And which is what what a statement <laughs> like what a philosophical <laughs> conundrum uh immediately right like who is who is the one who makes the lego racers go um uh or maybe that's what they tell him i just wrote the quote down but yeah he says a few times and this is part of what's going on in this chapter is that he's building out this kind of vague lexicon and, and i say vague here not as a criticism he specifically is saying look these words are uh you know they are what helps us get to analysis but they don't really exhaust what's going on here um you know he's saying these are maybe uh these are the best words we have to talk about these things they are maybe not the best words that sum up everything. But he says that, you know, both what you just said, that children's play is inherently surrealistic because it's it's taking on these kinds of codes or forms that emerge out of pre-existing media properties or pre-existing games, and then they're transforming it and doing other stuff with it. Um, and so it's this kind of transduction of behavior sets or ways of engaging with the world or whatever. Um, so that is happening, and it's in the way that the Surrealists were doing that, right? We, we've read books about that. Um, uh, the uh, I'm blanking on the author's name. Um, Laxton? Laxton, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we read all about the way that they kind of uh, did that kind of thing. And uh, the other thing here is um, talking about Phantasmagoria. Um, mm-hmm. And borrowing from Brian Sutton Smith, one of the rhetorics of play um, in that book, a uh, very famous kind of game studies book, and uh, saying that, you know, part of what makes play happen or one of, one of the things that occurs during play is this kind of absolute um, anarchy of concepts and ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when, when he's talking about his children's play, he says at some points, right, they're having conversations and sometimes they're just talking to themselves and just like babbling <laughs> about <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's obviously coherent to them or, or it's it's. Uh, contributing to the play space and it's developing the play but from someone who is on the outside looking in or even someone who's a participant in it but not you know in the brains of these children it's absolutely ununderstandable and yet still play is going on in fact this is constitutive play um or you know constitutive of the play moment this ability for nonsense uh, to enter in and become wholly coherentized um, you know, in some ways, I think, uh, and maybe this is my my entree into talking about this a little bit, but this book leans very heavily on some ideas from Gilles Deleuze uh, across the board. And it, I, I would have really loved if, uh, rather than using the ideas out of Bo- uh, Deleuze's uh, books on Spinoza, which are used here in really interesting ways, I would so much have rather seen an engagement with Deleuze's The Logic of Sense, which is quite literally a book on how the nonsensical can be rendered thinkable Mm -hmm. um, and how our modes of thought and our kind of formal ways of engaging with the world uh, can arrest the absolutely unthinkable, you know, not quite numinous, but uh, pure chaotic and then render it into a form where we can say things that are paradoxical or say things that are ironic or, or um, you know, mutually exclusive. But anyway, so I, it would be interesting to see some of the arguments being made here, um, read through the, this kind of other Deleuzean line. This is also the place in the book where um, Giddings takes uh, the first swing at talking about the virtual and the actual, mm-hmm. which are Deleuzean concepts. 
Um, and they, uh, you know, it's in the title, virtual and actual worlds. And, um, but I, I just don't agree with this, um, kind of analysis of what the virtual and the actual are mm-hmm. at kind of a basic level. My interpretation of Deleuze, um, and, and the kind of, you know, strain of Deleuzean studies that I'm a part of, um, just doesn't see the virtual and the actual as operating this way. The way that Giddings positions the virtual and the actual is that the virtual is a kind of uh, future to come, you know, mm-hmm. or a possible future, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of like if, if we think about like science fiction multiverses, right? The From one point, you know, whether I decide to sip my tea or not, it will determine a thousand things. You know, think about... Um, you know, uh, Malcolm from Jurassic Park, right? Mm-hmm. Chaos theory, that kind of thing. So, you know, moments in material, in Giddings' kind of presentation here, moments in material conditions in the world open up into lots of different possibilities. And so those vir- and those would be virtual. And then as time progresses and moves forward, those things, some of those things become actualized, right? Mm-hmm. So the virtual is a multiplicity of all the different potential possibilities that could occur. And the actual is the kind of slow, incremental catching up of time with possibility and turning and collapsing multiple different possibilities into one linear part of time. I, I don't, I just don't agree with that interpretation of the Deleuzean idea because the Deleuzean idea uh, holds that the virtual is imminent to any given structure or any given moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is not about causality in the way that Giddings is positioning it here. It is about material capability. Mm-hmm. Um, any moment in any given uh, uh, kind of um, historical time period, any kind of dot in history along the line of history could uh, has a multiplicity of is associated with it, has different um, capabilities. So it's not about timelines. It is about what is being actualized in any given historical moment. Mm-hmm. This can be transformed in the future, weirdly enough. You know, this is why Deleuze and Guattari make an argument in A Thousand Plateaus that capitalism goes back in time and makes itself possible, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like a wild science fiction argument. But what their argument is that there are these latent multiplicities within any kind of uh, material arrangement in the world that can then be actualized in relationship to other moments. So capitalism, so so for example, when um, someone says in the early 90s that we're at the end of history and things are always supposed to be this way because one way of thinking the world won out over another way of thinking the world, that is a way of re-grabbing all kinds of contingent weird moments in human history and then realigning them to make this moment in time make seem like it was always this way. Mm-hmm. It is actualizing a different possibility in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that operates in uh, you know in any different direction. It it, it operates um, uh, with future thinking. It operates in past thinking. It operates in the multiplicity of any given moment or any given historical arrangement of materials in the world. It's a complicated metaphysical idea. You know, I, I maybe I'm not explaining it uh, to the best that it could be. I'm trying to be a little bit condensed here. I can't walk through you know ten books <laughs> of Deleuze's thought to kind of get there. But but I will say that I would caution people from just citing this and kind of using it directly as a one to one. You know, this is what the virtual is and this is what the actual is because I don't think outside of this particular usage, this speaks to the other disciplines that are using these ideas. Um, there's some additional complication here where, for some reason, I, I, I'll be honest, I just can't quite track. The virtual starts being attached to the ludic. 
Um, and I don't, I honestly can't make sense of that. And I don't think it makes very much sense on the page. And additionally, the virtual then starts being like the virtual of virtual reality, which is another kind of complication that I don't think is captured or even signaled in the original Deleuzean use of these terms. So this is not me like blowing up a criticism of Seth Giddings here or anything like that. This is just me having a, a scholarly difference um, of, of opinion and of uh, the way that this idea is being used. And I would say that that this use and the game studies use of the virtual and the actual uh, is quite different from the philosophical use and the kind of big capital T theory use in other disciplines. And so I would encourage you, if these ideas sound really cool to you, and if anything I just said sounds cool to you, you should maybe check out um, some other people who write about Deleuze. Uh, Claire Colebrook has a really great um, um, uh, kind of uh, explanatory volumes from a few years ago, or actually maybe like 20 years ago now. Um, and you can look at Manuel Delanda's work as well as another different way of explaining this that I think gives a little bit more capacity or a little bit more, um, I don't know, just a little bit more to it that is not read so directly into this uh, social situation that Giddings is trying to explain. So, you know, this is not me tearing Giddings down again, but I, I think there's a wide difference in usages here. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. The, the So the first two chapters are virtual and actual worlds. Um, and then virtual media and children's everyday play. And one of the things that really muddies this distinction, uh, I think, that um, you're trying to make is that in the first chapter, virtual and actual are kind of apprehended as um, sort of the materially existing world versus like the imaginative apprehension of it. Uh, mm -hmm. so the kids have an imaginative apprehension of the living room when they're playing Lego racers, when they are the racers themselves, but that is a, um, sort of virtuality, uh, that is borrowed from the game and it gets transducted to use this Giddings term into the imaginative apparatus, uh, even when they're not playing the game. That's what virtual and actual is doing there. Um, and then, uh, the second chapter is do doing more of what you were actually getting at Cameron, where we're trying to think about, uh, virtuality as it derives from Deleuze, and it is, you know, this is on page 46, is defined as a phenomenon or entity that is not quite real, um, which is not precisely right. Uh, I sort of agree with you. My understanding of Deleuzean virtuality is more like it's about uh, the structure, the very structure of possibility rather than so much the uh, causality or like, uh, uh, you know, uh, chains of causality in the ways that uh, Giddings is talking about them. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's, that is a great short. So that's a much better short summary than the one that I gave. Right, right, right. right. It's, it, it, it is a metaphysical claim about how um, uh, material reality can kind of get shuffled into existence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so uh, th that is all to say, though, however, like the, the key distinction that is being uh, made here, um, uh, I think, from the point of view of Giddings's argument is that uh, children are not going to be determined by the, uh, the sort of media messages that they take on. Um, and this is part of the way mm -hmm. that he's trying to push back against kind of the moral panic narrative about all these kids and playing the video games and, and what have you. Um, and so like one of the key examples of this um, for him, uh, and this is from page 49, he talks about girls playground singing games, uh, where they, uh, and this is a quote, um, 
pick up and shred media messages such as pop songs, recompiling them into nonsensical rhythms and rhymes, effectual devices uh, for establishing and synchronizing moments of collective pleasure. And uh, he also mentions that uh, a lot of these sort of uh, twists on popular songs uh, will include like uh, innuendo or scatological references, right? A little bit of transgression. Uh, so kids are kind of, they're, they're not sort of just taking on culture and repeating it and reiterating it, right? They speak back to it in certain ways. And um, one of the other things that I think is really interesting about this book actually is the number of times I was thinking like, I wonder what would happen if we put this in conversation with whatever other author we had read. Uh, so here mm -hmm. I think, of course, of our episode of um, uh, the games Black Girls Play, uh, mm -hmm. by uh, Kyra D. Gaunt, uh, which talks also about girls' uh, playground singing games, particularly in uh, the context of young African-American girls. Um, and I think that's a really interesting parallel to make uh, here because we see uh, Giddings kind of marshalling it as here is how children are kind of uh, just universally overcoming culture. Um, whereas uh, from a more, I think, focused or not, not even necessarily focused, more like a, a, an actual ethnographic perspective, right? Like that is uh, the the it, it is it, that book is a work of musico ethnology or eth, musico ethnography ethnomusicology ethnomusicology okay <laughs> let's the, re the reason i know this is that uh after we did that book i had a student uh, like a semester later approach me about doing an independent study on ethnomusicology okay. <laughs> so so i have i'm now way more educated on <laughs> ethnomusicology than i was when we read that book okay all right well we got the term right um mm -hmm. So yeah, for, for Gaunt, this is actually, it is a work of um, ethnomusicology, uh, and uh, so much of that for her is about, like, the ways that identity is being formed through these, the ways that, like, children are passing knowledge between uh, each other, right, about the world mm -hmm. and the ways that the world works, and I think that's a really interesting contrast, right? Children uh, as a symbol of overcoming the world versus, like, uh, children learning to live and adapt in the world. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's something really what, what I really like about both of these chapters, right? Because the both the first chapters, as you've said, right, they're kind of setting up the theoretical stakes, they're delivering some of the terminology, and then they're kind of peppering in all of this um, kind of firsthand information that gives you a, a sense of why Giddings is getting to these terms. Like, why do these terms matter? And it's precisely because these children never quite fit into the easy categories that, that you know, in media facts or in uh, the studies of play that we would normally like, right? Like, the magic circle doesn't show up here very often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the reason for that is, like, for these kids, what would that even mean? You know, like... Uh, even in the moments where the magic circle or something like it, right, this kind of offset uh, thing shows up, that's it's being obliterated constantly with all these like negotiations and like references to Star Wars or whatever. And I agree with you. I think that they're um, that that what is by putting it in conversation with other books, what's being kind of demonstrated is that there are like a whole bunch of other systems here, mm -hmm. racialized systems, gendered systems that really are not being commented on one way or the other. I don't think that's necessarily a problem with the book or a problem with the study, but it, it is, you know, part of this participant observer thing, which is that it just didn't seem to come up for these kids. And so it's not really talked about very often here, but it does. I think you're right. It, it points to, um, you know, the good old fashioned additional research is required. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it must construct additional pylons. <laughs> and that's exactly what we do in chapter three, which is microethology methods for. Listen to that. Listen to that. I just let's take a moment. Okay.
What a transition. <laughs> <laughs> Need additional pylons uh, for microethology. <laughs> the, the probes have their own culture. <laughs> They're over there zapping that zergling. Uh, yeah, so the, the third chapter then is the one where Giddings is sort of walking through um, the, the process of like, as, as Cameron has already said, uh, the majority of the firsthand research done here is on Giddings's own children. And then it sounds like, um, possibly some like friends children. Cause there's some girls who show up later that I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some like friends children. It seems like they're, uh, maybe their kids playmates, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- those show up here. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 are you, you're referring to like the girls who are playing with the, uh, the camera app yes. on the Mac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, is that in the little girl who's singing? Like, I am the main character. <laughs> <laughs> What's really great about this book and like uh, uh, the the way that Giddings writes is that so many of these, you could just extract these and make them as tweets and you would get hundreds of retweets for no reason. So you're like, I'm the main character. You think you're the main character? I am the main character. <laughs> I'm ugly now. Yes. (laughs) That's another one that she says. (laughs) She's like, I'm ugly now. Oh, it's so good. Great stuff. Um, And it also points to, so there's two things happening here. One is uh, uh, Giddings is talking about what, uh, you know, uh, ethology would be. Um, Mm -hmm. But then also, and this is from the beginning of this chapter, I just feel it's worth like quoting from page 55. I am less concerned with the meanings constructed around children's media culture and more concerned with the materiality of both new media and the lived experiences of their consumption or playing. Um, This is a thing that's a point that Giddings kind of revisits a couple times throughout this book. Uh, He is not interested in like content analysis right like what does it mean really when like kids think they're jedi and they identify as like jedi or sith or like what does it mean when this girl is saying i am the main character and then suddenly is saying i am uh, now i am ugly um Mm -hmm. the specific content there is is not particularly important to gettings what is uh, in like that example with the two girls what's in interesting to him is how they are using the camera and like changing the filters and then how they're the changing filters uh cause changes in their play sort of this responsive loop back and forth between the technology and then like what what sort of game seems to be emerging uh because of course uh one of the things that he's going to point out is that in that situation with these two girls basically just mugging for a camera there aren't really rules right they're just kind of like mm-hmm. taking on persona and like saying things and like improving off each other uh and there's not really necessarily a plot uh or if there is then it like will be picked up and dropped uh sort of sporadically as like their attentions shift and things like that so mm-hmm. um the other then uh thing to to mention is that uh ethology is uh, a way for Giddings to kind of uh, circumscribe, like how how to make the kinds of claims that are going to be made in this book, working with a sample size that is admittedly very very small, smaller uh, small enough that it could not be an actual ethnographic study or um, uh, you know something uh, more befitting of a of a social sciences book. Uh, but the reason for this, uh, and this is on page sixty five. 
Um, while studies with much larger samples and extended longitudinal reach might give a statistical sense of scale, access, distribution, discourse, and attitude, they are unlikely to be able to say much about emergent phenomena, practices, and behaviors. So the essential argument being that um, by focusing uh, very closely on like just a few kids, uh, we can maybe have better quality statements to make about the specific maneuvers of children's play um, and what that entails rather than very, very broad strokes tendencies. And so ethology becomes this kind of alternative from ethnography uh, that is pulled out uh, again from Deleuze, uh, strangely mm. enough, um, uh, again from Deleuze and Spinoza. And I don't know if you had more to say about that in the way that Deleuze might use Spinoza Cameron. Yeah, I, again, this is another place where there's there's an interesting kind of uh, uh, not transduction, but translation of different concepts that's coming up. Um, you know, I, not to belabor anything. I, I, I think this is an appropriate pull. But but what's fascinating is like Deleuze is talking about ethology. Let me take one step back. The word ethology is normally used to discuss the observation of animal behavior, mm -hmm. um, you know, different from ethnos, ethos. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, there's some in kind of inherent claims about it there. And, and what Giddings is getting at is that, um, and, and across this book and this chapter makes really clear is that you can't just talk about people because that's insufficient to talk about how play actually works. Play involves all kinds of non-human actors, all kinds of stuff of that nature. You know, he explicitly says that he's borrowing from science and technology studies, from actor network theory, from Donner Haraway, from Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, as a way to kind of justify or to give some theoretical um, structure to this ethological statement. You know, so there, there's some kind of additional interesting steps that are here, right? So uh, Deleuze kind of detourns um, uh, ethology from Spinoza because Spinoza is interested in bodies and their affects, so bodies and powers. Mm -hmm. um, how do things interact with things in the world and how do things create more things in the world? You know, Spinoza has this kind of explanatory monistic, meaning unity, um, uh, monistic theorization of God in the world, right? For Spinoza, everything is one thing. And so he's creating this elaborate system for trying to figure out, well, <laughs> if there's only one thing, then how's there all this stuff in the world? And so uh, Spinoza had to come up with a pretty elaborate kind of theological system for explaining how the one becomes the many, right? That how, the, how something that is one thing becomes a multitude, how the actual and the virtual are connected. Right, you can see how this all kind of metaphysics up into one system for Deleuze. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can see that. I don't know if that if I, I drew that line uh, well enough. But, uh, uh, you know, ethology kind of emerges there as a way of being able to talk, as you just said, about the really small sample size. Because all you need is a couple kids and a really fine eye paying attention to how they connect for things in the world to give a pretty robust ethological analysis because and as Giddings does throughout the rest of the book right he's giving us a really clear thing about like here's where uh children here's where children pick up sticks and they become lightsabers and then they navigate this is in a later chapter but then they navigate where in the star wars canon that they will begin and then they begin with episode seven which was not out at that point and in episode seven there's a character named star jumper and one child right mm -hmm. and so 
there's all and, and then the a playground becomes a part of that kind of fictional setting kind of organically without any kind of explanation and then bases have to be defended and then the rules of star wars battlefront 2 appear mm-hmm. for these children and they have to navigate the world right so so what gains is after is how do all of these really disparate things you know, what is an analytic that we can use that allows us to speak to all of those things without minimizing them to just place setting or, um, you know, just random contingent context? What allows us to talk about all those things as equivalent determinants of the outcome of play? You know, play is not just where it happens, and it's not just the people who are there, and it's not just what's in their brains, but it's all of those things impacting one another at, at, at each time. You know, one can imagine if this book were written five years later that the word new materialism would have showed up quite often in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, instead we get this kind of STS, ANT, Haraway, DNG thing going on, which, by the way, all of those, all of those theories are very disparate in their explanations of what the world looks like and how you explain these things. But he's giving you a kind of vibe of where he's going. So that, that's all to say. That's what this chapter is about, is trying to give us the big theory, you know, bones of how we get to a place where um, these children can stand in for all of play. And it's because he is really looking through these children to see what we might call a metaphysics of play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one could imagine a different version of this book that is looking through these children to look at James S. Hans's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be, you know, like you were saying earlier, very curious to see what that looks like, because ultimately they end up making similar claims and very similar kind of Delizian style claims about how the world is inherently built out of play. But uh, Gaines is doing it through this kind of micro sample study. Mm-hmm. I, I think there, uh, you know, this is a real um, uh, when, when it shows up in the book, it's on page 65, but it, you know, it's a real uh, peer review comment that obviously Gaines uh, is responding to. Uh, he says something to the effect of like, microethology is important because then it allows us to see the way that people do things that can then be the support for other studies for other people to go do who aren't me. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and that really felt like a like, uh, you know, peer review comment. Well, what does microethology do? And at the end of the day, rather than going for, oh, it will give us a metaphysics of play. Isn't that cool? <laughs> he goes for, well, it'll, it'll allow the sociologists to go do whatever the hell they do <laughs> better, more informed, which is like fine, but not where I would go. Absolutely. And then uh, I would say uh, your comment about like the, the vibrant materialism, the, the place where that jumps out the most to me is on page 66, where, and I think this is, this is good because it's, 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 a, it's an evocative image that'll get uh, the listener, I think, somewhat toward uh, what we mean when we talk about like a metaphysics of play. Um, so because we have a, an ethology that is going to take into account just like what the kids are doing, but also what they're imagining, plus the props that they're using to play their games, plus the kind of uh, digital or technological toys that they have that provide the imaginative templates for these games. Um, We've got all of this stuff getting tangled up together, right? Very actor network theory. Uh, So on page 66, quote, children's play, a domestic environment and a computer game are reciprocally transformed. The everyday lives of children and adults are permeated by colorless energy, by entities that are hybrids of computer code and symbolic figures and by hyper real gravity. Um, so that 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 colorless energy line, I read that and I was like, oh, this is like vibrant materialism. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah, you know, you're you're evoking um, uh, Bennett's, uh, you know, uh, vibrant matter book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that co- I, I don't think I would call it colorless energy. 
um what a uh there's some ideology i think implicit in that in that framing there but but yeah that's yeah. the general idea right that that uh whatever you know this is latour's nature cultures yes. too right mm-hmm. the the whatever the lines are that we draw between the living and the dead or the vibrant and the not or the energetic and the um uh you know absolutely dead matter of the universe that those are ultimately um, uh, cultural distinctions that within a particular view of a certain kind of metaphysics, we could blow up. And if we blow those things up and take them more seriously, then what could we do? Mm-hmm. You know, that's been a big fixation over the past, I would say, 10 years in academia. It's kind of on the wane, I think, at this point. You know, academia is always on search for more areas to, um, I don't know, mine for material, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and exploit. Uh, exploit is probably the, the correct word, uh, you know, uh, a, as a uh, apparatus. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. kind of what academia does. Um, and uh, I, so I think we're kind of through the looking glass on that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that's a really great um, kind of summation of what the project is here, right? Mm-hmm. If if what we're studying is not two children, but play as it exists on kind of a ontological level, meaning at the level of being and the level of existing in the world, then what do we do? Mm-hmm. And ultimately Gideon says, well, drawing a line between playing Lego racers on the screen and playing Lego racers in real life has some problems because the kids don't see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they want me to be the guy who makes Lego racers go. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what would that mean? <laughs> uh, and that gets us, I think, to, uh, to some extent into... Uh, the fourth chapter, which is Media Worlds. And this is uh, more or less addressing uh, the implicit, and I think at certain points explicit concern, that uh, children's play or media is being eaten up by corporate interest, more or less. Uh, That Mm -hmm. kids are, like, if a kid loves Star Wars, uh, that kid is essentially, like, imaginatively trapped by Star Wars. uh, And, and, like, there is a boundary set on the possibilities of their imagination, and that boundary is, like, dictated by uh, Disney at this point. So, actually, historically, still would have been Lucasfilm. Anyhow... Uh, there's an incredible like uh, the, the other thing that's happening here, right, is that we get a sort of recap of something that happened in chapter two, which is uh, the history of children. Uh, chapter two is where we get like, you know, in the Middle Ages, we did not really have children, not in in sort of the the sense of like there is a special time in your life where you just get to play games and figure yourself out um, and make friends. That's really a product of the 19th century uh, and developments in capitalism, particularly in uh, Europe in the United Kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. And that is where we get sort of the, the culture of childhood uh, as it perpetuates to this day, um, which then here for Media Worlds, uh, Giddings is looking at as uh, kind of the the development from uh, rural life, like agricultural rural life. What do kids do for uh, fun and to amuse themselves uh, at that point in history through increasing urbanization? How are children playing on city streets? Uh, what does the, the introduction of like automobile, automobile traffic do to children's play? Um, and now to kind of this present moment of like, now kids don't go outside. They only stay inside and play video games, allegedly. And anyway, we mm-hmm. get some uh, tracing of that some tracing of uh, kind of reactions to it, including, as I was going to say, this incredible block quote that uh, notes obesity as a consequence of, quote, media consumption. Mm -hmm. Just like, 
blanket statement, like uh, a sort of uh, argument that Giddings is 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 interacting with that I found fascinatingly weird. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just like good old fashioned uh, media moral panic stuff. Yes. Like whatever thing we have decided is bad, media did it. It's just, it's like just media consumption. Like, yeah, you listen to yeah, the radio too with- much and got obese. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, uh, I I was looking at my illuminated manuscripts too often, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like a lightning bolt, uh, you know, it hit me, right, which is just like, you know, there's all this fat phobia that's associated with it too, right? It's it's two, um, uh, two kind of like violent sets of assumptions in the world that are just smashing into one another, um, you know, uh, super friend style, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to create this like weird, bizarro argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the chapter obviously is is not really going to truck with that. Uh, the point that Giddings wants to make uh, is that children are not entrapped by the imaginative worlds that they play in. And he quotes uh, a previous study uh, considerably at length, um, and I find it fascinating because mm-hmm. I think it would be very different if he had uh, listened to a similar type of uh, gameplay at the time he was writing or today. But anyhow, it's some girls, I think, in the early 90s. It's from like 1992. Um, and they're playing Snow White and uh, he it, it's and it's this strange mixture of the Disney film, um, various versions of it that the kids have heard or read. And then plus all like all of these other bizarre additions, like they keep having to stop and start to like choose who's going to be Snow White. And then there has to be kind of a, a discussion had about who is going to be Snow White and why is she going to be Snow White? Is it because this girl looks the most like Snow White from the Disney film? Or is it for this other girl for some other reason? Eventually, like Barbie becomes Snow White. Some one of the girls has like a Barbie doll and everyone just kind of like is like, yep, that's Snow White now uh so the the lesson to be drawn from this uh forgettings is that uh you know there is no one determinant reading of snow white that is holding mm-hmm. these children in in thrall um they're constantly kind of trying to negotiate with the material and sort of like adding their own strange uh perceptions of it or sort of like trying to inject themselves into it right establish their own kind of connections to it um and then there's a, a fascinating uh, quote on page 75 from Mizuko Ito, uh, who's writing on, uh, I think, then contemporary Japanese children's media uh, that mm-hmm. has this in, a very fascinating. I need to look this piece up. Um, this fascinating line about how contemporary digital media uh enlists uh the children's what uh, Ito calls activist, an activist mobilization of the imagination. Um, so that there is something kind of about more contemporary media franchises uh, that is about uh, more actively or more maybe more consistently trying to engage the child's attention. And I think we see some of that with like the consistency with which the the Lego racers show up here or, of course, um, mm-hmm. the, the Star Wars, the the uh, evergreen example, I guess, for for our moment. Um, yep. Uh, the other example that I think is interesting here is that he talks about when children draw scenes from films or uh, from media that they're aware of, they don't have any real desire for verisimilitude. Uh, and he talks about how like a children's drawing will often show like the process of a thing rather than a moment in time. So like the, yeah. the kid will be drawing like here's here's the place where the Pokemon is. Here is the Pokemon. And then like a whole bunch of stuff around the Pokemon to illustrate the Pokemon's different powers and things like that. 
Yeah, there's there's one point where uh, his child is drawing. He's like, "What are you doing?" And the kid says, "I'm playing Pokemon," and then, <laughs> and he's just like just drawing on on a page. And he's like, "Well, what what's that Pokemon do?" And he's like, "I'm playing Pokemon." <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> how dare you? I'm playing Pokemon. And so, like, you know, what Gideon says from that is that for from the perspective of the child, right? There's this broad framework, but any word could be given to that, right? It's really this impetus to play Mm -hmm. and this impetus to experiment and do stuff it has little to do with like snow white or pokemon at the end of the day um and and on one hand i find that really liberatory and i think that's a really interesting you know this is the benefit of the 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 micro ethology move right Mm -hmm. is that it gives you this kind of gradient of human life that that maybe is missing from from some other work I also don't know if I find this convincing. You know, I say this all the time, but I'm, I'm maybe a little bit more of a determinist than your average media studies scholar. You know, I think that uh, 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 media do things to us um, in, in some pretty active ways. Um, and I just wonder, like, if playing the if if playing whatever your media property is is just a thing, then then what are the and this word comes up later, right? But like, what are the micro politics of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Is playing Pokemon the same as playing police, mm-hmm. right? Or is playing Pokemon the same as like playing Union Guy, right? <laughs> like for these children, mm-hmm. they're probably not playing that, right? But, <laughs> but I wonder about you know because I I think about this in relationship to stuff that we get taught in media studies regularly, right? About like the doll test for um you know when you, when you give uh, uh children who are not white. Uh, dolls mm-hmm. and have them choose between a darker doll and a lighter doll. Children choose the lighter doll, right? And so this has always been used for for decades now as this kind of example of uh, racialized consciousness. You know, uh, the way that children, even at very young ages, are aware of a kind of um, a socially produced cultural gradient around skin color and race, and that that is a severe and significant issue. It's the whole reason, you know, or not not that one example, but that kind of framework is the whole reason we have discourses about representation, you know, for children. Mm-hmm. That 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 people need to see people who look like them in order to break the the racialized hierarchies in the U.S. And so I wonder, you know, where where is that kind of argument in this this kind of question about the emergences of possibilities for these children, right? Like there there are clearly other frameworks beyond like these frameworks of media properties do additional things that are not just are you playing Pokemon or Star Wars? Mm-hmm. And and I really wonder what that would look like and what a deeper engagement with that would be. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit to, like I don't think it's a problem with Giddings. It's a little bit to the side of what his argument is, but I think what is in this chapter begs that question. You know, it, it asks us to think a slightly different way of uh, you know of what we engage with here. Mm-hmm. And more to that point, uh, I think uh, unless you have something else to say, I think that actually takes hmm. me into uh, the fifth chapter. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So uh, related to that, uh, chapter five is called Soft Worlds, and this is a uh, Soft Worlds play with c- computers. And so the concern here then is when a child uses a computer and figures out how to play a computer game or a video game, um, 
what uh what is happening there and the model for this ends up being for Giddings kind of the cybernetic circuit uh you know the 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 machine that uh makes space for user input and then responds to that input and then that uh the user can uh make some sort of sense of that input and then make further in or make sense of that output I should say um and then make further input in kind of the cybernetic feedback loop on page 92 um, games, especially from uh, mass media franchises, quote, are constituted by cybernetic feedback loops, have automata and non-human intelligent agents as playmates, all within and through synthetic and responsive playgrounds. They are part of what I will call distributed imagination. Uh, so the idea here is that when a kid sits down at the computer and is going to play a computer game, uh, they are maybe going to transduct some prior knowledge about a particular franchise or media world. So something about Lego, right? I know what uh, uh, one of the things that gets talked about is uh, one of his sons uh, taking the little Lego racer off the course uh, on like a beach mm -hmm. level and driving into the water and driving very, very slowly until you hit the point where you are auto killed and you have to despawn. And the kid just keeps doing this, right? Trying to literally testing the boundaries of the game world, trying to figure out at what point does the game uh, uh, count you as drowned. Um, so, uh, you know, how is the child one uh, learning kind of the, the rules of the game world here, right? Uh, experimenting with it, uh, testing it. Um, but this is also kind of reinforced by the, the playfulness of Lego, right? Legos are things that are meant to be uh, sort of thrown around and broken, right? It's it's fine if your Lego guy drowns because he's going to come back because Lego guys don't drown. Uh, there's a way in which the... the, the That's our new t-shirt, by the way. Lego guys don't drown. <laughs> yeah, Lego guys don't drown. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good t-shirt. I like that. I'm sorry to interrupt you in the middle of your flow there, but that's too good. I, I got I got to drop that in there. Yes. Uh, so uh, I uh, I think that that is um, good. I, I like the idea of distributed imagination. Right. Uh, this mm -hmm, idea yeah. that, that there are sort of mo like when a child is playing a game, it's not just activating like that specific game interaction, but sort of a, a whole context of stuff in their life. Um, and then one of the big effects of computerization on children's play then uh, means that in video games, rules are implicit uh, and must be learned through this type of experimentation. And they are also generally immutable. Uh, and this is a, a kind of distinction for digital games that's come up with other thinkers throughout this show. So it's something we've heard before. Um, then we move into this uh, point where uh, it, we're talking about Michael Nietzsche. Is, is that how you say his mm -hmm. last name? Uh, as far as I know, yes. Okay, I'm just making sure. Um, yep. So then uh, Giddings moves into this quote from Michael Nietzsche, who is talking about how when a person learns to play a game, they are not understanding the code. They are, in fact, understanding the, me uh, the game world mediated by the code. Uh, and then Giddings um, says that, you know, even if players do not understand like on the level of the code language, like how this thing is working. Um, players still understand what they're doing is essentially kind of computerized, right? That there are rules and that you can uh, kind of cause any number of scenarios up until a particular case. And then your Lego guy is drowned and has to be respawned, right? That, mm -hmm. um, that, there is not an ignorance here on the player's part that they are learning how the computer thinks through these things. 
Um, and what I think is interesting here uh, is that this is, uh, I think, essentially one of the arguments that Alexander Galloway makes about software in uh, either the interface effect or in gaming. Um, maybe he makes it in both places, but it's the uh, point that he makes that software is ideology. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's also Lev Manovich's oh. argument too, right? Oh yes, no, okay, that is okay. That's mm -hmm. Manovich, so I got them mixed up. That's great. Well, and also, uh, this is in Buckles' dissertation in the nineteen seventies. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that that's what's so fascinating. Uh, you know, because you know, I I'm I'm pitching this book constantly. Buy my book when it comes out. Uh, but, uh, you know, in my book, I'm writing about empiricism, right? Like mm -hmm. how, how do people make decisions knowing what they knew from the past and then make decisions about novel situations within games? And it's so funny to me how that really is this kind of core concern of so much of game studies is like, how do we know that people know what they're doing? <laughs> like, how do we find out if people know what they're doing at any given moment? Um, and there's so many like of these assertions and assumptions that either people do know what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing. Um, and it, it all kind of revolves around this, like, what do we think players do when they are confronted with information that they have not in, you know, engaged with before, you know, based on what they've experienced so far. And it's, it's really funny that you can kind of see like the ideological bones of game studies in some ways based on the way that people answer this question. Um, you know, and for me, it's always like, well, uh, what have other games entrained them into doing? Well, they're going to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, there's something here about uh, inherited structures. And it's very, you know, thinking thinking here, too, about um, the relationship between Giddings and Krogan, right? That they they were colleagues at one point. Uh, is that this is also what Krogan's book is really about. You know, like, how how does one respond to novel situations given the history of technology of games? Um, mm -hmm. and, and what does it ask you to do? It's also kind of what Colin Milburn is asking, although, you know, kind of across uh, uh, the ocean in mm -hmm. that similar place. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, finally, then, I think that this chapter kind of ends on this note of uh, ultimately, right, what these digital, like what the emergence of kind of digital artifacts into children's play does. Um, and I think a really good example that is given here is that uh, in the case of The Sims, we have a version of an older type of play, right, The Dollhouse. Um, but The Sims takes over the imaginative animation of the dolls, whereas the child would normally have to, you know, sort of assume the persona of the character and move them around the house and so on and so forth. Uh, the Sims does all that for you. And so uh, and that does not, in fact, eliminate your imagination. Um, it, it, you know, there's still imagination going on when you're playing The Sims, but it means that you're imagining different things. You're imagining uh, sort of the interior, like if, if you're the sort of Sims player, right? You're imagining uh, the interior sort of desires or needs or kind of like trying to make a narrative out of uh, what this character is doing. Or alternatively, right, you're the kind of player who is um, interested in seeing like, well, what happens if I make the character do this, right? If you're just sort of fiddling with it, uh, you know, putting your furniture next to the fireplace to see if you can get it to catch on fire and that sort of thing um mm -hmm. so then ultimately what does digital media do to play what do digital games do to play well they uh structure agency uh rather than eliminating it right they, they sort of uh funnel you into a certain type of possibility space um you know here are the things that can happen in this game but that then provides a platform for other types of imaginative work 
Yeah, and I really, I mean, this is very similar to the Krogan argument. You can feel these these ideas being in conversation with um, one another. And and I'll be honest, I would love to have, have gotten a little bit more of this chapter in conversation with the previous one. Mm-hmm. Because there, there's something really interesting going on in the friction between them. Um, because, you know, Snow White or Star Wars, right? Snow, Snow White, uh, in, in, in Giddings' argument, Snow White might structure... Uh, your uh, knowledge or whatever, your imagination, but ultimately it does not overcode. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 there's still plenty of space for riffing. And then this chapter we get that games do do that. They, they provide some real strong bounds of like what is the thinkable space, although there's plenty of like room to riff within those things. And I, I don't know if I think that Snow White and the rules of a game actually function all that differently broadly. I mean, maybe within the microethology here and within the case studies that he he is working with, maybe that's the argument. But but I'm very curious about you know to jump this forward a few years. Marvel as an entity has has entirely industrialized this idea. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have like your mainline Marvel films, and then we get Marvel What If, which is like, hey, what if we shifted around some of these guys and made <laughs> them do the same stuff, but with different hats on? Uh, and uh, it, so it seems like, you know, the aesthetic imagination, the kind of corporate aesthetic imagination of character like Snow White, like Captain America, whatever, that that still functions as a pretty hard set of rules. And they really encourage you to like riff as much as you want within that, right? definitely go write your Hawkeye fan fiction. Everyone's favorite, Jeremy Renner. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I don't, I, maybe this is just a historical change. I, I don't, I, I don't think this is a problem with the Giddings argument. I think that both of these claims can exist, um, uh, you know, uh, coterminous with one another. But I think that there might be a historical maneuver that has happened to make the uh, aesthetic rule just as strong as the game rule mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Um, and you know, because, because, you know, at the same time as playing in the Marvel sandbox has been, you know, the intensity of that has gone up with like making a TV show out of what if, which is a longstanding comic book series of doing this kind of riffing, um, doing things like making very clear canon for star Wars and then turning all of the, the eternal riffs of that from the past 30 years into star Wars legends, right? That's a, that's another moment of setting very clear aesthetic, rules into what counts and what doesn't count and so creating this kind of rule-based policing of are you in the box or are you out of the box are you playing appropriately or not playing appropriately i mean maybe what i'm talking myself into saying is actually that this like argument that they have uh, or that they're about to have in chapter six about what is the appropriate way to play star wars is just Mm -hmm. now all of culture Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe 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 that's another uh uh, great intro (laughs) or a great transition for you there yeah, that's uh, chapter six, Playgrounds, the Material and Immaterial in Play. And as you have already told us, Cameron, this chapter is primarily about him observing his sons and some friends and plus some, I think, kids who just happened to be there that day uh, on an actual playground. Um, and the kids like have uh, you gave actually basically the blow by blow earlier in the episode. But mm-hmm. this whole thing about playing star wars how do we play star wars which episode are we playing where does this exist in the timeline up to the point that they're like we're playing episode seven which does not exist at this point and so we get the whole kind of original uh episode seven um i bet it just crushed these children (laughs) i bet 
when episode seven came out and they were not at the core of it. I bet it just got them. Mm-hmm. It's poor kids. They shot their shot. Uh, <laughs> there's also the great kid. We both <laughs> we both like mentioned this in our notes. The kid who sings a musical number from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this like his name. I think you said his name was Sam. Yeah. Is that true? This kid named Sam shows up and and Giddings is immediately like and then Sam showed up. Sam's a weird little kid. He often does things that are not like pro-social in the sense of like playing along with other people's designs. He brings some weird and wacky energy with him. You know, you you can feel the <laughs> 1980s movie growing out of this. Yeah. And and uh yeah, he he does a rendition of the theme of Robin Hood Men in Tights apparently in its entirety. Mhm. Which is, that's the funniest thing on earth to me. That's amazing. It's it's such a, like, specific thing. Like, here's the kid who's always at the playground who really loves Mel Brooks films. Yes, and he also pretends to forget Seth Giddings' name and starts calling him George Washington. Yeah, anyway, um, you, can, you can go wherever you want. Yeah, I, I think, like, the this chapter is... Uh, kind of the simplest in a lot of ways, because uh, what it comes down to is talking about the ways that uh, building off of what we said before, that kids are not wholly determined by the imaginative universe in which they are trying to participate and that um, kids uh, play with objects in unusual ways or like play with objects to learn about them, so on and so forth. Uh, This chapter comes down to uh, quote 122. Uh, game spaces are fashioned from the material characteristics and features of the environment, as well as from imaginative and cognitive operations. Uh, and there's a, a children's play, I guess, scholar named Edith Cobb, um, who is quoted on the environmental character of children's play. So I think that's an interesting angle to, to take here and to think about that. Um, and this is uh, aligned with, you know, what would... Uh, in an agrarian uh, setting, how are children playing outside versus an urban setting? How are children playing outside? Right. What are the games mm-hmm. that the urban environment offers um, versus the the types of games or, or horseplay that are offered by a more rural setting? Um, these are all kind of concerns that I think that I'm getting the sense, right, are at the core of the study of children's play um, and that I think that they're uh, useful for thinking about in the future. Um, for Giddings, obviously, this is a, a useful way to think about the ways that all of this transductive material, all of these media franchises and so on are being ported into children's play as essentially, you know, scaffolding for other types of imagination. Um, and he also talks mm-hmm. about m- more on just the the, the sheer surrealism of children's play. And if you've ever watched um, a group of kids play a game, uh, it is very accurate how they start out trying to sort of observe some kind of like diegetic realness with regard to Star Wars until eventually everyone's just like hollering and hitting each other with sticks that they're pretending are lightsabers. Like there's there's no character anymore. It's just like pure tomfoolery. Yeah, yeah, and I uh, something that that gets talked about here, you know, in like other play literature is like mimesis, right? Mm-hmm. Like children mimicking children, mm-hmm. um, and then ki- children mimicking other stuff. And I and I wonder, you know, is there like a tipping point analysis somewhere <laughs> of like, <laughs> what, you know, how much Star Wars can children care about? Um, you know, I know there's a whole there's a whole lot of like uh, children in play literature, and I'm I'm curious about 
that? You know, like what is, are there studies of like how long will a child entertain some other idea before just like pure glossolalia takes over mm-hmm. and they're just like muttering and screaming about whatever they're interested in. Um, but yeah, that's probably chapter six, right? I, I like this, uh, there on, on, uh, page one twenty seven. there's a phrase I really like, uh, that's, uh, this is quote, a degree of imaginative control is ceded to the prosthetic imagination, meaning the, the parts of the imagination that are kind of encoded by external media objects. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like the idea that, that imagination is like, I mean, this is just straight up, funny for this to be like a new materialisty kind of thing. And this is just straight up Kant, right? Like, <laughs> like uh, the imagination, lo and behold, it legislates among the senses, much like judgment does. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a kind of freewheeling capability that's running around, but ultimately can, kind of gets grabbed by alternate forms of rationality or something like that. They're sorting the world, but children still have this capability to jump around that or do something else uh, beside it without what it seems like, you know, not to be a Kantian about it, but without what appears to be judgment itself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're not making, they're they're having arguments about what uh, counts in the star Wars thing, but they are all happy to like leave that behind and, and do something else. Even though that one kid got turned into Darth Maul. Mm-hmm. I don't think she... We, we didn't get any opinions about whether she wanted to be Darth Maul or not. No, she just has to be Darth Maul. <laughs> yep. Sometimes you show up late and you gotta be Darth Maul. We all know that. <laughs> that happens. That's that's a prominent academic uh, conference thing. <laughs> the last person to the conference is Darth Maul. Yeah, you gotta be Darth Maul. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I guess, in, unless you have any other things to say, I guess we can talk about chapter seven, the, the end. Yeah, let's talk about chapter seven. Yeah. So chapter seven, real worlds, realities, virtualities, and the proto-politics of play. Um, this is, again, just a kind of conclusionary chapter uh, saying that, you know, kids have all these game worlds available to them now. Um they're like children's media uh, and internet media sort of mean that they're constantly having these things routed into and through their lives. Uh, but that does not impact their, or we should not assume that this is impacting them in any uh, massively harmful or negative way. Uh, and that it is not in fact, just a, a sort of another factor alongside the things that have always influenced children's play, like where they live, um, you know, sort of social factors, uh, uh, school and, and things of that nature. So uh, what do we do then uh, with this term of proto politics? It's, it's kind of like Giddings uh, recommendations for Things to keep in mind as we continue to study uh, digitized children's play. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing uh, is like to admit uh, that children are capable of bad play or that when kids are playing, uh, they can do things that can seem really weird and disturbing to adults. Uh, And one of the uh, uh, examples that he talks about here is like a teacher who witnesses uh, a group of children torturing one of the other children. Yeah, this is pretty wild. Uh, And it's really confusing because the way it's like a quote, I think, from someone else's field report. But the way that it's introduced is like it doesn't establish that it's a play scenario up front. So it's just like the children like grabbed the the one child and then began to whip him Um, about 30 times. It's very specific. Yes. Yes. And uh, it's like, well, and then and then the teacher shows up and is distressed. And it's like, yeah, I would be distressed if I were the teacher in this situation. Uh, But then it's made very clear that like the kid who is uh, being whipped is like it's, it's like all in good fun. Like he's not actually being hurt. And that like 
uh, uh, it's sort of like this big joke where all of the kids are in on it, but the teacher is not. Um, And I don't mean like it's an actual conscious joke. It actually seems like it's just a a thing that the kids were doing that the teacher witnessed and kind of flipped out about. Um, So we don't want to constantly idealize children's play is the point is that kids can do some weird Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. And, you know, this is again, I I wish the the book would take some of its ideas and kind of push on some of its other ideas because I'm very uh, confused about like where uh, where's the what's the prosthetic imagination here? Right. Mm -hmm. Like. These, these children have gotten it from somewhere mm-hmm. that pretending to whip someone, which has got a real history to it, right? No matter where you are in the world, mm-hmm. uh, that that is like a form of play. And I'm curious about like what conclusions were drawn from that in this, uh, um, from from the kind of case study, but Giddings doesn't go into it. What, what I do think is really, really interesting is the end of that, <laughs> that the, the thing. So... Like, you know, the the teacher establishes, oh, this is just a joke, you know, or mm-hmm. this is just a game. Uh, obvi- this is the quote. Obviously, all the playmates are satisfied. The game is, for all intents and purposes, okay. When the teacher intervenes, the children become directly aggressive. Chairs are thrown <laughs> yes. around and everyone is in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of questions about that case study. Like, what what classroom is this? <laughs> I just imagine they're like, oh, you're going to stop my whipping game? I'm out of this fucking place. I'm done. And like throwing chairs, punching drywall. Uh, there's like something really odd going on. I feel like if I dug into this, it would be like, and all the children were 18 years old. <laughs> and, you know, Like there would be more weird complications to it that, that would get even stranger. They were all 18 years old and they've been raised on an oil platform. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the children become directly aggressive. Chairs are thrown around and everyone is in a bad mood. There's something so funny to me about about. Everyone is in a bad mood. <laughs> you interrupted my my whipping game. <laughs> um, I don't know. I interesting. Maybe I'll maybe I'll track that down. See what's going on mm-hmm. in uh, Wegener Sporing's nineteen ninety four study. Okay. Uh, so then the the second point beyond like the potential for children to to do bad play or play weird things um, is the way that play results in what Giddings calls the, the multiplication of realities. And this is uh, tied in with what we said earlier about the virtual, right? The virtual is always taken to be, um, a kind of alternative possibility for the current reality that has not yet taken shape. And in there, in, in that way, the way that this, uh, book is imagining the virtual, this is, this is where I think, uh, to, to answer a point of your confusion, Cameron, where the virtual mm-hmm. and the ludic come in, uh, uh, to contact, uh, in the way that this book is using virtual because it's always a method of thinking what uh could could it be otherwise right Mm -hmm. um yeah at the the opening of the chapter there's this kind of move of thinking the as if as the virtual mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, which i still don't agree with but yeah you're absolutely right this makes it much more clear Mm -hmm. what the relationship is between those two right um uh, then the third point uh, is, and I think this is interesting, I'm just going to quote it uh, entirely from page 139, the peculiar tendency of play to render hierarchies, rules, and meanings ambiguous or even to invert them uh, from the momentary nonsense of a joke or song to the medieval carnival's turning of the world upside down. Uh, I quote this just because, uh, I, as I've said on the show before, I I am a little uh, Bakhtinian in my core, right? Mm-hmm. Mikhail Bakhtin, Rabelais and His World, sort of a, a, a foundational study on carnival um, in medieval and early Renaissance Europe. Um, 
And it's precisely uh, uh, around these questions of like taking social hierarchies and inverting them or subverting them. So Carnival, if you don't know, is a time uh, when all of the orthodoxies of like social decorum for uh, medieval Catholic Europe um, could be made fun of. Uh, it's the the time uh, before Lent. Uh, it's about sort of uh, letting social pressures off. So uh, here's like we're going to take the ugliest donkey in the village and we're going to say we're going to dress it in the priest's vestments right um moments of really uh strong kind of transgression uh, or what should be and this is like the, the tricky and sticky point of carnival and i guess why i quote this at some length um the the question remains in the study of things like carnival is like is this actually is this not contained transgression uh, that is to say, if any of the stuff that happened during Carnival posed any kind of real threat to uh, like the, the the structures of the Catholic Church or the the um, ways that people believed in or at least bought into and complied with uh, the the church's structures and sort of all of the structures of monarchy that derived therefrom, um, would it have happened every year at the same time? Uh, and so there's a, a, a obviously, right, you can hear here in my voice uh, the sort of critical take on the study of Carnival. Uh, but one of the things that Bakhtin talks about is how like Carnival is really about like the ability of of the social body to uh, reveal that essentially the emperor has no clothes, right? That at the end of the day, like all of these social categories are arbitrary and we can put the priest's vestments on the ugliest donkey and nothing is going to happen to us. Um, I just I just want to highlight that because I think I this is a thing I'm interested in and uh, I am not of either mind right I think that this is kind of like built into this dynamic of carnival and I think it is um, just worth highlighting that Giddings brings it up in basically just kind of the liberatory mode um, mm -hmm. and uh, I definitely think liberatory things can happen in, in this kind of inversion and subversion and transgression, uh, but that does not mean that uh, larger social forces can in fact put those kinds of energies within a particular context where they are uh, encaptured, essentially. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm super pessimistic on this. I'm, I'm a battalion on mm -hmm. this question, right? Like I... Uh, I, who makes it, you know, makes a very similar argument, um, working out of Marcel Mauss's work, um, and, and some other anthropological stuff. And it's got all the same problems of, uh, the Kawa that we, you know, talked about in that episode, you know, a lot of anthropological racism baked into Bataille, but ends up making a very similar argument to Bakhtin in the sense of, uh, w when you look to social systems that, uh, have within them predictable periods of chaos, almost uh, universally they use those in order to you know the interregnum produces the next king right mm -hmm. there's a social function of chaos and uh you know when we see moments of truly kind of global historic actual unplanned chaos right this is clr james's argument in the black uh, jacobins you know the the book on the haitian revolution um then when that happens then you can when when truly unplanned um chaotic throwing down of hierarchies occurs, then you actually see what it means for the state form and capitalism and uh, the kind of imperial project to respond to it. And it does not look like the carnival to uh, next week relationship is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm of a similar mind and, and I think that, um, you know, I, we, we, I, the liberatory mode is insufficient for me as well. 
the the fourth point then uh, closely linked to the third is uh, about Brian Sutton Smith's Phantasmagoria, which we've already talked about, which is that uh, uh, play is extremely weird, right? It, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, uh sort of a whole bunch of things kind of being stitched together. It can change modes or tonalities uh, uh, at any given point. Um, and then uh, this happens, uh, it's important for getting with or without technology, um, mm-hmm. and also ties in with the ability of play to either under undermine or reinforce social norms, depending on kind of how things shake out in the context they shake out. Um, uh, and then the sort of final point is, uh, what do we do with um, media- mediated events or sort of like media things that make implicit, uh, and this is another direct quote from uh, uh, 139, uh, implicit or explicit recognition of their own artifice. Um, and the idea here then becomes something about what, this is on page 146, what Giddings calls uh, simulacral operations. Uh, so games are operations uh, rather than specific static representations um, is kind mm-hmm. of the distinction being made here. And this is very similar, I think, again, to uh, what we saw in Patrick Krogan's work, right, as, as simulation being... Uh, uh, both the form of the future, but also n- not quite right. It, it, it was slightly more complicated than that. Uh, one interesting thing that I, that I find here or found here on this 139 kind of summary of the end of the book is uh, that, that basically uh, Gideon says that that uh, beneficial thing that happens with play, a thing that we always have to keep in mind is that um, uh, str- good, maybe not stronger good is maybe not the right thing, but he says this is this is the quotation. Top of 139. Quote, to oversimplify, it is more important that boys and girls have a space that is safe, but not too safe, and open, but with interesting corners, in which we play together or around each other and with useful materials to mobilize and transform, than it is to police the semiotic characteristics of these materials. Right? So it's it's about that we should cultivate... I, the I, the choice of, of saying boys and girls here is, is a little bit odd. You know, I think it, this is just like a rhetorical flourish. But in a general sense, what, what Gaines is saying is that uh, if we want to think about positive forms of play or like socially productive or, you know, uh, pro-social forms of play, then you got to think about cultivating a space and not cultivating like a weird set of arbitrary rules mm-hmm. of like what's good and what's bad. And, uh, and because children are always going to kind of have a sense of like what the thing they're supposed to be doing is and what the thing that they want to be doing is. And, and when they align, that's good. And when they don't, they negotiate it. Something that's really interesting to me is that you know, Giddings is saying this this is important for childhood play, but this is, um, I've been reading um, this book by Sailor called As If, which is a, a kind of um, uh, 19th and 20th century history of uh, the as if proposition, like the imagination. Mm-hmm. What, what, what happens when one entertains an as if? And Sailor calls this the ironic form and argues that it is the predominant media relation from the 19th century forward. Mm-hmm. That that this is just engaging with media. We know that it is doing a certain thing, and we know if we want to engage with that or not. You know, we we always have this uh, double uh, thinking process mm-hmm. of how I'm supposed to think in relationship to the object versus how I'm actually thinking in, in myself. Right, 
uh, you know, when, when I'm often talking about uh, immersion and how I just don't experience it, it's because this this uh, ironic form that Sailor is talking about is just like in overdrive for me all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always thinking about those things. But so it's really interesting to me to think about that in relationship to the Giddings because Giddings is saying we have to cultivate that in a very particular way, and there's all kinds of good reasons to do it. And then Sailor is saying, well, actually, that's just how all media engagement works. Which, uh, you know, if we combine those two things, I think an interesting output is that if the 19th century invents childhood, the 19th century also invents gradations of childhood of which we are all are a part of when we engage with media. That all media forms functionally treat us like children, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, I don't know if I agree with it or not, but if you, you can staple these two ideas together in really interesting ways to... To, to think about how do different forms of media uh, kind of um, uh, hail us as particular kinds of kids um, and, and always are kind of uh, pseudo-infantilizing us, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, you, I, 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 in graduate school, I was watching a lot of YouTube and I wrote quite a few seminar papers about how weird it is that lots of prominent YouTubers are just sniper, no sniping, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, what's that over there? I'm so scared of what's behind that door. Um, and, you know, they're not just kids are watching that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I think that that is also uh, uh, something worth to worth pondering. And I would actually push back. I'm interested in, uh, is it Sailor that you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm interested. I'm interested in this argument because I would uh, go back even further than the 19th century, as I've said again, I think mm-hmm. on this show multiple times, one of the things that makes me an, an early modernist, a person who studies the drama of, uh, you know, the, the 16th and 17th century uh, is that, um, the, the work of like Shakespeare and his contemporaries is constantly making a point of like the audience's own capacity for imagination uh, and making like open calls, right? Uh, 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 Henry V beginning with the chorus coming out and saying like, we are inadequate, right? The theater as a space is inadequate to actually showing you what all of these historical battles were like. Uh, therefore, we need you to imagine with us uh, what we are doing, right? Uh, making mm-hmm. this kind of open call to the audience and making a kind of uh, space for them and their own imaginative work. Um, that I, I don't know about sort of the infantilization thing. I don't know exactly how I would I would chart these things uh, right now, but suffice it to say, right, that uh, I think that this is a kind of fundamental aspect of like mediatized play, that a kind of ironic mm-hmm. way of looking at it. Yeah, Sailor starts back then. Okay, uh, that's and, great. And, and basically says, like, there's a bunch of... Uh, I'll send you the link to the book, and other people should check it out. Maybe we'll do it on the show. You want to just do it on the show? Yeah. We'll just do it for our next book. Okay, all right. That's it's fun. Uh, it's a fun book. It's a game studies book. It, it, it explicitly is engaging with game studies in its, in its later chapters. Happy to, to read it again. I just I just read it. Um, but uh, it starts a little bit earlier and then kind of says there were uh, competing modes of media engagement and then kind of says by the time we get to the 19th century, the ironic form is the, the predominant form, but not the only form. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, let's just do it. Well, that's our December book. <laughs> okay. CF sailor as uh, is dusting off my hands, uh, uh closing up shop, <laughs> going to sleep. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, you can take us out then. Cause I guess we're done with the book. 
Well, I got to talk about one more thing here because, uh, you know, basically, exactly as you've summarized it here, the this kind of big set of, of ideas that, that were given on 139, that kind of gets played out and then that's the end of the book. But I need to point out that this drive-by shooting on a tractor that happens. Oh, yes. No, this is the example of phantasmagoria of how like weird things come together. So it's like they're like at an orchard or something. They're just like at a farm and the kids like hop on this tractor and then are playing Grand Theft Auto on the tractor yeah they like watch someone playing grand theft auto because they're too young to play it they, you know, mm-hmm. the parents will let them play it but they like watch someone's older brother play it and then they just become fascinated with like grand theft auto and so yeah they, they're like at a um uh it, it's like a national registry house is i think what it's called it's like a big historic home mm-hmm. you know what we would have in the u.s is a big like in a state oh yeah yes, i guess yes, you yes. just go there and hang out i don't i don't really know uh, like a touristy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they just get on this tractor and they start pretending they're playing Grand Theft Auto in the way that, that Giddings has been talking about in the whole book. And they're like shooting people who are walking by. Yes. Uh, which which is pretty wild. And this is, a you know, because Giddings is writing in the UK. And what's very funny is in like in the US, that is like not cool. <laughs> <laughs> like like I you didn't get to like pretend to shoot people when I was a kid. Um, no. And uh yeah, it's just like not not cool, and maybe that has to do with the reality of gun violence in the U.S. But um, anyway, anyway, that's all to say. Yeah. Uh, I I had a good time reading this book. Did you did, did it do what you needed it to do for you? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, this is gonna this has given me some grappling points for making a lot of the points that I am going to need to make about Homestuck. Uh, but I'm not going to mm. talk about those here. You can hear those either at Homestuck Made This World or read them in whatever book I write at the end of this the yeah i thought it was great you know obviously i have some like kind of methodological or philosophical disagreements with what's going on in the book in some places but i think overall a a fascinating book a really interesting kind of demonstration of a method that i probably would not engage with or really have much uh you know not i was gonna say interest but not interest i do find it interesting not have much uh kind of tactical engagement with if not for the show you know i really write about children's play and i don't really do ethology or ethnography and so this is a little bit further away, but I think, like I said at the end of the last episode, you know, I've, I've kind of kept up with Giddings' work and have read several of his uh, essays over the years, and very cool to read the book. I, I, I thought it was a, a fun, short read, and, uh, you know, I, I think the method is is really cool, and it is one that I would like to see more people experimenting with. You know, I, I have my caveats for it that I said at the beginning, but I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're writing a term paper, uh, maybe think about using uh, microethology as a way of talking about, like, the way you and your friends play or the way that, uh, you know, your friends interact with their game consoles. You know, it's, it's a pretty cool... Um, non-hierarchical, wide-ranging system that can speak to a lot of stuff. And uh, I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Next book is, uh, we just decided, on air, as you heard, it is called As If. As If. <laughs> as If. As If. Modern no, enchantment right. in the literary prehistory of virtual reality. Yeah, As If, Modern Enchantment in the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality. It is by Michael Saylor. Uh, it is a book that you can purchase on the internet um, and anywhere else. It's got, a, it's got a Sherlock and a wizard on the front and a Cthulhu on the front. There's mm-hmm. a, We're going to learn a lot about fandoms. We're going to learn a lot about like 
uh, logical propositions. <laughs> Hope you're excited about that. Oh boy! Uh, but it, but it's but it's kind of a, an investigation into the as if of the imagination. Right? You know what what happens when we engage with media objects, particularly literature in in Sailor's case, and ask the question: If this happened, then what would, what else would happen? So you know, I was obviously interested in it for my own research. Um, and I've, I've read it and I'm discussing it in my book and I, I think it's uh, an interesting thing to, from outside of game studies to maybe bring in and make sure that more game studies people are, uh, engaging with, cause I think it's a pretty cool set of ideas. I'm looking forward to it. I, I think you, you'll probably get more out of it than I have actually, mm-hmm. uh, since you're, you're going to have a little bit more, um, uh, more, uh, I, I, you know. Uh, background that you know in common with it mm-hmm. but uh michael where can people find you on the internet you can find me on twitter.com at warren is dead what about you cameron you can find me at c kunzelman you can go to rangedtouch.com in order to uh see what we're up to we got a bunch of different shows like homestuck made in this world where we are doing a long form um in order media analysis of homestuck uh, michael's working on his uh, book at the same time and so it's a really cool kind of active research uh, thing it's just a fun show there's a lot of jokes and whatnot on that show if you don't know what homestuck is that's okay it's a web comic full stop <laughs> and uh you know there's a lot of uh lore and uh, uh internet uh talk about it chatter about it what is it what isn't it what's it do it's scary people tell you not to read it i'm here to tell you never read homestuck before perfectly readable perfectly enjoyable don't get scared of it we, we have the, the perfect uh, intro for you. Come check out Homestuck Made in This World. I bet you'll enjoy it. And uh, we've got other shows just like uh, Just King Things. We're reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order for this month. Uh, no, for the yeah, for this month, we read Christine. For next month, we'll be reading Cycle of the Werewolf. You can check that out by going to uh, just rangetouch.com. You can support all these shows and some other stuff that we do, like Too Much Future and Mages and Murder Dads, by going to patreon.com slash rangetouch in order to support us. And if you go down to the link below this, you can click a little button that will um, allow you to buy merch if you want to buy some merch that supports Range Touch. Uh, we're getting into the holiday season. You can always buy a gift over at rangetouch.com. Uh, if you want to tell more people about the show, we only grow through word of mouth and that would be super, super helpful to us. So go to pureideology.biz to tell other people about <laughs> game study, study buddies. Michael, you got anything else? You got like a fun anecdote to jam here at the end to make sure people listen. Uh, not to keep people on. Okay. I, I just have, I was going to say like, uh, uh, just to say that all of the all the stuff we just talked about with children's media doesn't matter because uh, when I was hanging out with some children in the woods this past summer, um, mm-hmm. they were now. Why were you doing that? What? Oh, because they were my uh, brother and sister in law's uh, kids, plus like some kids of their friends. And they were showing me mm-hmm. uh, the this is this is actually a really good Giddings kind of uh, anecdote. They were mm-hmm. showing me the village that they had built in the woods. Uh, village and scare quotes it was mostly some rocks that they had arranged to denote where certain things were and it was clear that like whatever they were doing had been deeply informed by some sort of crafting game because they mm. couldn't just tell me that like this is like the apothecary or whatever they weren't using the word apothecary but you know yeah do I mean. you think that many children are running around identifying the apothecary they they use the term <laughs> potion maker okay but it's, it's, i love the i love the idea michael that you're like of course children would have an apothecary 
library in their imaginary <laughs> environment. Uh, anyway, they were talking where, where about... Else, they would get their salves. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, this is... They need the salves, Cameron, because mm-hmm. dragons would attack, and the dragons couldn't be killed unless they could find a way to craft the right kind of arrow, but they only oh, had yeah. materials around them that could craft, like, different types of arrows. So the dragons were, unfortunately, at that time, invincible. Uh, anyway... <laughs> just ravaging their village. <laughs> they were. Day after day, just <laughs> annihilating it. And they can't imagine their way through it. Just, God, we don't have enough arrows. I don't know what to do. <laughs> we can only craft ice arrows. These things are immune. Mm-hmm, um, of course. <laughs> and then I obliterated all of this uh, by reciting for these children the plot of Macbeth, with which they were they were held enraptured uh, until I had to leave. So that's 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 what video games get you. Nothing to the power of imagination. Now is that the one with Burnham Wood? Yes. Oh, okay. Every time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but almost every time you mention a Shakespeare play, I've asked you, is that the one with Burnham Wood? I, I have noticed. <laughs> I, I uh, wasn't sure if uh, you were trying to sound something out there, or but now yep. I've confirmed it. Yep. No, I'm going to keep doing it, too. It's, okay. it's uh, funny to me. Uh, well, uh, you know, rip to their village, I guess. and mm-hmm. uh, uh, But thank God they got a little bit of dose of the classics, you know? Yep, yep. That's what matters. Nope, they... I, I could tell one of the kids was a little morbid, so I was like, hey, kids, you want to hear a scary story? And so then I tell them the witch play. Um, mm-hmm. Might have added a dragon, just for a little bit of spice. Mm-hmm. So, until next time. <laughs> so three crones appear, and there's a big dragon. <laughs> when shall we three meet again on our dragon? <laughs> hey, okay, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. It would make that play better if there were a dragon. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, okay. All right, fine. We'll we'll end the episode. Uh, we will be back in a month with um, uh, Michael Saylor's "As If: Modern Enchantment and the Literary Prehistory of Virtual Reality." Thanks so much for listening to the show. And uh, Michael, take us out with that catchphrase. Uh, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. <laughs>